Welcome to Zondo Commission Unpacked, a Corruption Watch podcast. My name is Mwepeng Valeshatalani. This podcast is brought to you by Corruption Watch and produced by Volume. Now, it's been a while since we've been here. In fact, the last time you heard from Zondo Commission Unpacked, the State Capture Commission was still hearing oral evidence. Not only did it go on to the final phase of its work, the writing up of its report, but the final installment of this very important document was handed over to President Cyril Ramaphosa in June this year. Ramaphosa has tabled his response to the Commission's findings and recommendations. I'm sure the findings most people were looking forward to were related to the many high-profile people who were implicated and what would happen to them. But there are also recommendations that speak to the systemic changes in how government should function. The common theme across the Commission's report seems to be that the Zondo Commission wants government to hire the right people to do the work of leading state institutions, make sure they have the correct resources to do so, protect them from political or executive interference, and equally hold them accountable for decisions they make about the entities that they lead. The changes that need to happen are big and will require a lot of work, And in addition to that, they will require political will, particularly from the ruling party, which holds national power. Now, with me this morning to discuss some of these changes that need to happen is Corruption Watch Executive Director Karam Singh. Karam, welcome to Zondo Commission Unpacked. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Really great to have you here. Before we go further, I I would just like to get a sense from you, a brief summary of what your thoughts have been about not just the commission itself, but also what the president has had to say in his response to it, and parliament as well, of course. Well, I mean, the whole process, I think it's fair to say, has required quite a lot of patience. Uh, When the Zondo Commission initiated its work, I don't think there was an anticipation that it would take as long as it did. And even, even with the amount of time taken, we know that Um, The terms of reference for the commission were so broad that uh, the commission was not able to go into every municipality, every provincial department, or every department of state to look at issues of state capture. So uh, given what the commission was unable to do, we still have to give the commission significant credit for what it was able to do. It was an incredible exercise in uncovering revealing, confirming the entire uh, modus operandi of state capture uh, at the level of the executive, the role played by the Gupta family and President Zuma, and then the specific case studies, particularly of the state-owned enterprises where the big money was stolen, most notably Transnet and ESCOM. So, Uh, Despite the frustrations and the time, we have to give the commission itself credit for the manner in which it uh, executed its mandate and the extensive historical record that it provides us. Following the submission of the final report, as per the uh, previous litigation in this matter, the president was given four months to provide his response, which he has now done and tabled, and we also now have received a response from parliament. In some ways, we have to give the president some credit 
for uh, engaging with the broad findings and recommendations. President's report is about 70 pages. And uh, he effectively deals with uh, the findings and recommendations, noting that a large number of the recommendations go straight into the space of the National Prosecuting Authority, which is an independent body over which the president is not able to influence. The president also took a bit of a wide berth on the various recommendations that are meant to go to parliament on the basis of separation of powers. I think on that basis, the president could be criticized a little bit. The president has his name on the front of the report. Uh, It's his response to the Zondo Commission. And while parliament may be tasked with the mechanics of engaging with these recommendations, the president could have made a much stronger statement about um, the role we expect to see from oversight bodies, and particularly the legislature, given how wanting they were in the era of state capture. Uh, Parliament also has now given uh, its responses. And, uh, you know, the devil is really in the detail in terms of looking at the individual responses to some of the issues. Some of the issues Parliament says uh, it's already dealing with or it's already dealt with. It doesn't anticipate a lot of further action. So, yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. But I think on the whole, if we were to take the findings and recommendations for what they are, and we read them with something like the National Anti-Corruption Strategy, I think it does in a way provide a blueprint for the country in terms of what our priorities should be going forward in the short and medium term, and maybe even in the long term, in terms of the fight back against state capture and corruption. Absolutely. I think for me, um, however, the the most concerning thing would have to be um, the response from the president and from parliament are both quite vague in, in, in terms of what they respond to. I mean, the report of the commission was quite detailed. It went into quite a lot of detail as to, you know, how perhaps things could be done to fix um, some of the systems that are, have been weakened over the years. But nevertheless, um, I suppose it's on us as civil society to keep our eye on how Uh, both institutions, the presidency and um, parliament, the National Assembly, respond to these. Now, in terms of the structural reform recommendations that the Zondo Commission spoke to in in terms of the recommendations, I'm just thinking out loud here, the examples being the appointment recruitment processes for leadership of state-owned entities, um, the professionalization of the procurement space, and things like that. Do you think we are really going to be able to, are those going to be realized? I think that really remains to be seen. And and I think you're right to, uh, in a preface, the the discussion flagging the question of political will. So, um, you know, the president himself in this moment is facing quite a few challenges, uh, challenges which could actually go to the heart of of whether it's viable that he continues to lead the country as our our president and executive. So there's a party conference which is coming up uh, uh, in a few weeks. There's also, uh, you know, a potential impeachment inquiry which is going on. So I think the first hurdle that we would need to overcome is a question of the stability of our leadership at really at the top of the apex of the state. And the reason why 
this has become a risk is because the president hasn't identified a focal point beyond himself as the driver of these various reforms. So you note some some frustration around vagueness. What we see the president do, perhaps in a, a democratic way, is to identify the different mandate holders within government who would be responsible for taking forward certain recommendations. So when it comes to issues around the intelligence uh, sector, the president says this will be taken up by the State Security Council and the minister, you know, and, and, and officials within the intelligence sector. And, 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 and the same kind of pattern follows down the line. So you, you see the recommendations getting pulled off issues around law reform relating to enhanced whistleblower protection and support goes to the Department of Justice. Uh, Procurement reform goes to the National Treasury. And and what we don't hear from the president is to say, I am committed, my cabinet is committed to implementing uh, to the best of our ability within the existing framework, the findings and recommendations, and they're going to be driven by me or it's going to be driven by this uh, ex-official, the minister of whoever, uh, and, and this is going to be the focal point, you know, and these are the timelines. So, you know, the, 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 the recommendations, the president acknowledges the importance of the recommendations, and in, in many places there's a firm commitment to taking them forward, but it then kind of gets diffused in terms of who actually will be the driver of these reforms. And I think this goes back to an old South African challenge, right, that we have extremely good policies, extremely good laws. In this case, we have an extremely good diagnostic forensic report about how we ensure that the the state is future-proofed from uh, state capture happening again, Yet there's some. Then now there are these doubts about what, how these policies actually get implemented. Now shifting gears a bit, I think um, if we were to move a little bit outside of the state into uh, the party that basically uh, some would say was vilified by the Zondo Commission, um, the ANC, in his response and at least in his live television uh, address on the day that he handed the response to the National Assembly Speaker. Ramaphosa mentioned the ANC as one of the uh, organizations that had received the reports, or so many hundreds of thousands of uh, pages of the report that we all have had to, you know, basically plow through. The ANC has the report, and the ANC's catered deployment policy is one of the really big issues in that report. And yet we have heard absolutely nothing from the party or its leaders about how the issue of the CADA deployment policy is going to to be addressed, except, of course, for the litigation that's going on, um, the response to the DA in court and, and, and however, whatever you know, process or direction that takes. We don't know exactly where, in terms, in the context of responding for the for the purposes of giving the public confidence that something is being done about the issues that have been brought up by the Zondo Commission. The ANC hasn't taken us into its confidence, if you will, and said this is how the party wishes to 
address this issue, um, this red flag that has everybody up in arms and, so, and actually has an impact on one of the very key recommendations, which, is, which has to do with how the leadership of state institutions is appointed, the CADA deployment policy. Can, can we move forward without the ANC having addressed this issue? I don't think we can. And I think you're absolutely right to flag this as perhaps the most concerning uh, and disappointing aspect of the current response to the recommendations. Cater deployment, uh, as identified through the report, was at the heart of you know what facilitated the capture of different institutions of state, of different functions within departments. And... Um, you know, I think the Zondo speaks quite forcefully in terms of its recommendations about the need to move outside or move beyond this kind of situation of catered deployment. Now, perhaps the cautiousness on the part of the governing party uh, in terms of providing a firm response to this relates to the very litigation that you've that you've identified. But certainly, I think as a public that's frustrated and wants to see consequence management and action, it certainly would have been well within the realm of responses from the ANC to say, we acknowledge the damage that's been done through this policy, and we're abandoning a policy of cater deployment. Uh, it will no longer be the basis upon which we seek to fill posts within the civil service, and we're committed to uh, a, a meritocracy uh, which is distinct from uh, the kind of networks of political patronage. We haven't seen the ANC make a statement like that. I'm sure this is an issue which may get debated within the context of the party conference. But even even the resolutions that may um, flow from the party conference, uh, uh, their actual implementation of those uh, doesn't fill one with a lot of confidence given the recent track record and particularly around the uneven application of uh, anti-corruption policies or measures such as the so-called uh, uh, step aside policy, so uh, I think this is a real is a real red flag, and I think uh, um, it's something which we'll have to continue to look to advocate for, and to try to seek those types of assurances from the ANC, and and I think this could become a, a, an election issue if we don't see significant a significant response or movement from the governing party on this issue. Quite interestingly, um, one of the recommendations that we, being Corruption Watch, that we put forward, or rather one of the submissions that we put forward to the Commission that made its way onto the recommendations um, section of the Commission's report has to do with, of course, how the appointment of such leaders can be implemented, um, that it be transparent, that there be a certain level of scrutiny beyond just this person is competent, their CV says so, therefore we should place them there and everything. So it would be, it would be very interesting to hear from the party 
how it engages with that element of, of the recommendations and, and how perhaps it sees its role, if at all. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that the ANC should play a role in how um, it has been playing a role, but I don't, I'm not suggesting that it, it continue to do so in how uh, leaders of state-owned entities are appointed and how they go on to do their work. But it is worrying, like you say, that there has not been a word from the party. I would have hoped by this time that we would have learned as South Africa that we shouldn't always wait for court cases to first be completed in order to to make public submissions about where we stand as public institutions. Now I want to move on to a rather emotive issue in the sense that it's one that is very close to our hearts um, as members of staff of Corruption Watch, and it has to do with whistleblower protection. And as we tend to add on to that uh, line or that theme, whistleblower protection and support. Again, quite vague in how this is going to be implemented, um, how this is going to be changed, how, what it means for a potential whistleblower in South Africa, the, the changes that are going to be implemented by the Minister of Justice, I think they're called now. So um, what's your take on that? Is government hearing what whistleblowers are saying, do you think? Is there a way that they could do more or a lot better? Uh, should we have perhaps a commission of inquiry into how better to, to address the issue of whistleblower protection and support? Yeah, I'm not sure about a commission of inquiry, but certainly government, the government through its convening power uh, could bring together all the various role players to sort this issue out. Look, I think, I think the issue of whistleblower protection is strongly recognized by government as a, an area that needs to be taken forward to future-proof the state from, from state capture. It was strongly acknowledged by the president in his remarks before the commission that the commission wouldn't have been successful, wouldn't have gotten as far as it did if it wasn't for the courageous inputs and interventions made by whistleblowers in a variety of matters. So, you know, the president hints at the the idea that this matter is now before the Department of Justice for review. But I think what's clear is just to, to, to emphasize what the challenges are. And, and, and the challenges relate to the fact that the current system is very narrowly construed to the idea of reports that are made within an employment context. And this idea that we have a system which protects disclosures, but it doesn't necessarily protect the people making the disclosures. So um, if you make a disclosure, it's, it's what's meant to happen is that you uh, receive some protection, uh, including the potential protection of your identity, and that uh, if you are identified in, in the work context, that you shouldn't suffer any occupational detriment. But we know that the reality is a stark difference from that, that whistleblowers get harassed, they get victimized, they lose their jobs, and then in extreme cases, their physical safety is put under threat, and in some cases, they're assassinated. So then the issue then has emerged about what type of a system do we have around witness protection? And witness protection is governed by a completely separate piece of legislation, distinct from the Protected Disclosures Act, 
And if, if you look at the statements that have been made by officials from the National Prosecuting Authority, the witness protection system doesn't work in this country. You can only get into witness protection if you are identified as a key state witness in an ongoing prosecution. So that doesn't cover the Bobita Diokarans who are who are just providing information to an ongoing investigation. So, you know, the, the proposals are there. The proposals are quite wide-ranging in terms of even thinking about how we could build into the system of whistleblower protection and support some kind of notion of incentivization. So the current system disincentivizes whistleblowers from coming forward. If we had an incentive-based system, what we would be saying is that whistleblowers would have access to some kind of rewards, which could be financial rewards, they could be otherwise, for information that they provide that leads to a successful prosecution or a successful asset recovery. We see this in other jurisdictions in different forms, and the idea does find positive uh, support in the Zondo recommendations. It's getting a lot of airtime, a lot of discussion within civil society spaces, within multi-stakeholder forums with government. Again, we're not seeing that kind of strong, focused commitment from the top to say, we've, we're going to take these recommendations on board, and by this time next year, we're going to have new legislation which ensures from the inception of a complaint being lodged, that whistleblowers will receive protection, that there will be a space within the public sector, within government, to receive whistleblower complaints, and that the various other challenges that whistleblowers face, whether it be psychosocial support, uh, etc., are dealt with. So um, it's all still to do. The proposals are there. The commitment to honoring these recommendations is there but it's not clear what the modality is going to be at this stage. So many organizations have been formed over the years. Such important organizations have been formed over the years that speak to, or rather that address the issue of whistleblower protection and support. There are organizations that whistleblowers, both in the public and private sector, to come to them for counseling or other support or other kinds of support and things like that. So I don't see how we're able to move forward without hearing the collective voice of the people who have suffered the implications of blowing the whistle and losing access to your salary, access to your livelihood, losing your job, losing your house, um, or even your family in some cases. So would you not say that whistleblowers should be at the solutions table for this area of reform? Do you think there's any room in any way that we could accommodate such and have it be more successful since it doesn't seem to resonate with the higher echelons of leadership as it should? You know, there used to be a slogan in the human rights sector, in the disability sector and in the the gender rights sector to the effect of nothing about us uh, without us. I think you're absolutely right to flag the importance of whistleblowers and the prominent whistleblowers we have across our society into these discussions. 
whether it be through the whistleblower house, through the active citizens movement, uh, even through Corruption Watch itself, where we have uh, appointed a new board member in the form of Temba Maseko, who is a prominent whistleblower in the GCIS space. And I know that the whistleblower groups, uh, also supported by Corruption Watch, have come together, are looking at issues around a new draft legislation, uh, are engaging in multi-stakeholder forums with government. Um, so, you know, I think we just have to keep our, our shoulders to the wheel, as it were, uh, keep giving this issue the prominence that it deserves. And hopefully within this period, we'll see some some kind of a breakthrough. But at the moment, based upon the general response of the presidency uh, on this issue, it's not satisfactory and it's not really clear where this is going. What a, an unfortunate um, state of affairs there. I really hope that the discussion around whistleblower protection and support will get there, that we will indeed be able to encourage as many South Africans as possible to stand up against corruption by more than just going to social media and, and, and talking about it there, but also involving themselves in, in whatever initiatives that may be coming up that have to do with whistleblower protection and support. Well, it's on that note, Karam, that we're going to end today's episode. It's been lovely chatting to you. We hope to hear from you soon. Thank you so much. It's been a very enriching discussion, and I look forward to taking these discussions forward. Thank you so much. That's been another episode of Zondo Commission Unpacked. It's a Corruption Watch podcast. My name, again, is Mepeng Vanesha Talani, and this podcast is brought to you by Corruption Watch and produced by Volume. Thank you very much for joining us. Volume.